the preaching of God's Word is in Daniel in chapter 3. And for Daniel chapter 3, we have uh, attention given to verses 1 through 18. And so we won't be treating the whole um, chapter this evening, but we will be looking at chapter 3, verses 1 and through 18. We've read the whole of the chapter already, so here uh, the latter part of it where it uh, comes to a crescendo. So there from verse 15, Nebuchadnezzar speaking, Now if ye be ready that at what time ye hear the sound of the cornet, flute, harp, sackbut, psaltery, and dulcimer, and all kinds of music, ye fall down and worship the image which I have made well. But if ye worship not, ye shall be cast the same hour into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. And who is that God that shall deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we are not careful to answer thee in this matter. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of thine hand, O king. But if not, be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. Well, we begin a brief series this evening on the chapter, wherein we take up three sermons dealing with the uh, record here of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Notice that it all comes to us by way of trial. These three are set before us, and they are set before us as examples of faith. In our day, unfortunately, this has become suspect. And so, though it's true, of course, to acknowledge that the central message of the Bible is that gracious redemption which is accomplished by Christ, and indeed that Christ is the sum and substance of the whole record of Scripture, it is wrong not to derive guidance from the lives of those who have walked in faith. And there is a tendency in some so-called reform circles that says you cannot come and say, see what these believers and godly men do, did and therefore do the same because that is to make a law out of the Bible. Of course, the problem with this is the Bible has a law. The Bible tells us what's right and what's wrong. The Bible also commends examples, not least of which, of course, is found for us in Hebrews 11 where the so-called hall of faith is presented to us to the end that we ourselves would be encouraged to exercise faith in the midst of trials. And yet, of course, we must beware of turning the whole of the Bible into nothing but a law. Because the Bible is particularly precious to us, not only in that it clarifies uh, the law of God with great plainness to us, but it also presents what no other book and no other source does, namely the way of salvation. What we have here, though, is no uh, competing with the message of salvation. Instead, what we have, as we have with every godly example, is an evidence of salvation. We have the outworking of salvation. In Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we don't find three who, if we follow them, will earn salvation. But rather, we have three who by God's grace and that grace of salvation are led to trust God in the midst of the opposition. 
The text doubtlessly is familiar to most, if not all here, these three faithful and noble Jews that were in captivity, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And yet that's not their given name as they were born Jews. You'll find, for instance, in chapter 1 at verse 3, it mentions these three, or chapter 1 rather, and verse 6, it speaks of, Uh, There were children of Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, unto whom the prince of the eunuchs gave names, for he gave unto Daniel the name Belteshazzar, and to Hananiah of Shadrach, and Mishael of Meshach, and to Azariah of Abednego. So these three before us are Jews, particularly from Judah. And you'll notice as well, that these are mentioned as, verse 3, those who were of uh, the king's seed and of the princes. So they had a royalty and a dignity to them. Moreover, it's further described of these three with Daniel, that these were children in whom was no blemish, but well-favored. And so outwardly handsome, attractive, beautiful. And yet notice they have various other Uh, characteristics, skillful in all wisdom, cunning in knowledge and understanding science, and such as had ability in them to stand in the king's palace in whom they might teach the learning and the tongue of the Chaldeans. Now, that's what Nebuchadnezzar was looking for. And yet, what Nebuchadnezzar wasn't looking for is what is here evidenced for us that more than just of the lineage of royalty, and of an outward uh, uh, dignity and beauty and strength and a mental acumen that gave them the ability to learn all manner of things, they were choice in God's sight because of faith. And so Nebuchadnezzar and this kingdom is looking at the outward thing. And there was something there to the outward. But of course, we see here God prizing the inward. Well, Nebuchadnezzar lifted up in pride forms an image You'll notice it described in chapter 3 as this great and magnificent thing. We don't know all the details of it, but it is something reaching roughly 90 feet tall and 9 feet wide, perhaps something of a great stand. And then the image, you'll remember that this earlier uh, dream and vision that he had uh, was likening Nebuchadnezzar and his empire to the head of gold. And so it's interesting that when Nebuchadnezzar makes this uh, great uh, object, that it is of gold, verse 1, and an imposing figure. And yet what's telling as to what Nebuchadnezzar is doing is he's promoting false religion. And so, uh, as we'll consider in the coming series, we'll look at verses 1 through 18 this evening as we see a trial given to faith. And then we'll look at two other sections, 19 through 25, as there's fellowship in the trial, and 26 through 30, as there is glory after the trial. So our attention this morning or this evening is given to the first 18 verses and the faith that is exercised in the trial. So three things for us as we look at this passage. Firstly, the test to faith. Secondly, the evidence of faith, and thirdly, the resolve of faith, the test, the evidence, and the resolve. Now, before we launch further, it might be worth noting 
Presently, we have no reason to suspect that you or I would be brought into such similar circumstances, yet we have to admit we have no clue. We don't know how quickly the, uh, the empire of the United States, our nation, could quickly turn in similar ways and uh, begin to abuse those who hold fast to the cause of Christ. We don't know what will happen to our bodies. We don't know what will happen in the next day. But even if the status quo as it is continues the length of our lifetimes, we will face trials, temptations to our faith. And it's helpful in the Lord's mercy that He sets up this extreme example because it helps us see the essence of faith in trials so that every lesser trial that we face has some guidance in the flesh and blood of the lives of these three who were motivated by grace through faith. Well, let's look then firstly at the test to faith and noticing the nature of the test. We know that faith is the persuasion and trust in God's Word, and particularly all that He holds forth in His Word. Commandments, we trust those commandments are good and right and to be obeyed. Promises, we trust those not only as good and right, but embracing them, we lean our hope upon them. We trust that the message of the unseen God is a message of a true God. All of these things, of course, are the exercises of a soul upon things that are as yet unseen. And one example, for instance, of faith is we believe in the resurrection. The resurrection is a bodily event. So the body that is laid to rest in the earth or devoured by beasts or however else meets its end, we believe that each and every body will be brought together and raised up again. There will be the resurrection of the unjust unto damnation, and the resurrection of the righteous unto glory. And yet, none of us see that right now. In fact, we see all around us evidence to the contrary, in that for the length of time that men have been buried, there is yet to be a present-day resurrection. There, of course, is the example of Jesus Christ, but you and I don't see Jesus Christ. And so it's an aspect of faith. Well, you'll notice that the test of faith is that it presents things that are visible, physical, tangible. And herein lies a great test. We're presented with a thought, which is real? Is the physical, tangible, visual, visible real, or is the unseen real? Of course, the fact is that both are real, but in our sensual lives, we tend to favor what is seen, touched, felt. And this is what's going on in the passage before us. Notice there is a very physical image to worship. There is a very real uh, uh, ruler who is giving a real command. There are real heralds proclaiming that command. And there are real people who are bowing down to this image. And then there's a real punishment if one fails to do so. Now, all of that is real. And all of that is tangible. One can touch and hear and see these things. And so Nebuchadnezzar wasn't some figment of an imagination. He was a real ruler. And his empire was not something that was made up. It was truly in place. 
And verse 3, the princes, governors, captains, judges, treasurers, counselors, sheriffs, and all the rulers of the provinces were really gathered together. And the image of threescore cubits high and six cubits broad was a real image. And then the command comes, which is a real command, and says, verse 5, that at what time you hear these instruments, ye fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king hath set up. This is a real, physical, and visible thing. But notice, here are the teeth to this trial. Verse 6, Whoso falleth not down and worshipeth, shall the same hour be cast into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. So what is the test the nature of the test. It is, are you going to trust the unseen God in the midst of facing a seen emperor with a very tangible, painful consequence if you fail to submit to His Word? Whose Word are you going to submit to? Because they're at odds, right? Even the children, the youngest will know that the Bible tells us we're to worship none other than the true and living God. And here is a specific, explicit call to worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king hath set up. And if one fails to do that, it's not a little thing, but it's a significant thing in that they are to be cast into the fiery furnace. This is the nature of the test. Whose word will we trust? Now, brethren, The nature of this test is universal to every temptation. It's universal to every circumstance wherein you are faced with this choice. Will I submit to God's Word, His commandments, trusting His promises, believing who He is, or will I compromise and omit or commit that which is contrary to God's law? And so you can put into your own context of relationships, of friends, of family, You can put it into your own context of personal matters of, you know what the Word of God says, but there's sensual attraction to omitting what God says. There's sensual attraction to committing what God forbids. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had been given much honor. Notice the previous chapter, verse 49. Daniel requested of the king, and he set Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon But Daniel sat in the gate of the king. So these four, these three in particular, are exalted above others. And you can think how that enhances the temptation. If I would just compromise a little bit, what might I gain still through my influence? I've been exalted above other rulers, these secondary uh, groups as it were. And so if I would just continue and preserve my life, then I might have cause to do greater good. These are the reasonings of carnality. And we're all too familiar with them, aren't we? We're ready to compromise a little bit because of a pretended gain that we'll get in the end. Well, not to take too much from the future, but notice the gain that is had by their faith in that the end result of their faithfulness, blessed of God, is that there is more recognition to God throughout the empire of Babylon. The power of the test is enhanced by their position 
and in the fact that it would have been very conspicuous and proved to be so if they failed to blend in. So this massive group of sub-rulers gathered together and the command is given, Whoso falleth not down and worshipeth, he should be cast into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. But notice, it says that, verse 12, there are certain Jews whom thou hast set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have not regarded thee. And isn't there a temptation that we face when it seems that the whole course of others is going one direction. And if we fail to blend in, we'll stand out. That's a real fact. If we fail to blend in, we will stand out. And some reality needs to be acknowledged that the Lord does not call us to compromise His commandments or His honor for any pretended gain. He calls us, even when the masses go differently, that we would trust His Word. You remember the famous words of Martin Luther at the Diet of Worms when he was challenged to recant. And though he had stumbled the initial evening, the Lord gave him grace to come back and to lift high the standard of faith. And those words conclude with, Here I stand, I can do no other. Think of that language, here I stand. He's surrounded by all manner of people who are calling for him to recant. and He stands in many ways alone in that little meeting. And yet, he was not fully alone, both because Christ was with him and there were others who would stand with him in due time. But we often don't see that, do we? In our circumstances, the blinders come up to the rest of the world and we're often like Elijah. I, even I only, am left, is how we feel. And yet, for the moment, imagine that that's true, that only you are left. The test still comes. Will I trust the word of the one true God or will I compromise and give in to what I see before me? Now move on secondly to consider the evidence of faith. And you see this particularly in verses 12 and 16. The evidence of faith is found in their refusal to walk by sight. To be very clear, there is no vain profession. There's no testimony from the three. They don't come up and say, well, we're Jews and we're going to do this. They simply abstain from the false worship. And this gets noticed. Verse 12 as, as read, There are certain Jews whom thou hast set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these men, O king, have not regarded thee. They serve not thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. They stood out conspicuously. And why was it they stood out conspicuously? It wasn't because they were saying, well, we believe God is God. It's because their faith was shown in its action. Their faith was displayed by their behavior. They would not bow to the false image. Now, of course, we'll see that they do make profession of the same when challenged, but it is something for us to realize. There is often a bravado that comes out from, at best, neophytes within certain sectors of Christianity 
where they get quite bold in themselves and they talk much. And yet we've heard that talking before when Peter was challenged. And Peter said, Lord, though all should forsake Thee, yet surely not I. And yet what happened to Peter has happened to many of us as well in our pride. When the moment of test came, the actions failed. Whereas the opposite is often the case for those who are truly trusting. They don't make a big announcement. They don't go forth and shout out and they don't you know, blast something on social media. Their lives do the talking. Their lives are the ones which are bearing the witness because they go about in lowliness honoring the Lord. They go about in faithfulness following His Word. And so though these three had great influence, the evidence of their faith was not by the mouths moving. It was rather by their whole of their life following God. This is something for us to consider. We don't in the least mean that we should abstain from giving open profession of our faith. We do mean that it is a far stronger witness that our lives bear witness to the truth in conforming themselves to the counsel of God. That will be sufficient in a broken and sinfully compromised world. They refuse to walk by sight and thus they refuse to sin. Now it happens in other ways as well. When you remember the apostles are forbidden to preach, they don't put you know, publicly this blast throughout the culture of their day and say, well, we're going to do this and that. They simply go out and preach. Their word is not really the thing. It's their actions which is demonstrating their faith. So they don't, go, they don't go into a tirade against things. They don't play the victim. They don't go on and say, oh, woe is me. They simply in humility and obedience of faith follow the Lord. And brethren, in our day, which loves to play victim, you see it not only in you know, the world and so on, you see it in the church, where the church will love to throw up all of these arguments and people will put others on blast and drop all of these uh, weighty words against them instead of the lowly walk of obedience to God's Word. We can put it in particular contemporary context. The world doesn't need the witness of social media to know that you're a faithful believer. You don't need to tell the whole world through social media your woes. You don't need to be the one who tells everyone all of the ways that the world is opposing you. You don't need to live out your faith on social media. In fact, there's tremendous danger doing so because it has a platform that tends to puff up pride. And pride goes before the fall. What you need, what I need, what the church needs is a host of Christians who in the day-to-day living will evidence their faith by holiness. And if we committed ourselves more to that, we would indeed magnify the faith which we otherwise would profess to have. Indeed, this much speaking before the world seems to be motivated by a different principle than faith it seems to be motivated more by pride and attraction to ourselves instead of 
a lowly walk saying, what does it matter what happens to me? My whole life is going to be one of service to God. That's faith. Faith is caught up with God. Faith doesn't have a concern about itself and what others' perceptions are and so on. Faith is earnestly seeking to honor the Lord. And that's what you see Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego doing. They serve not thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. And brethren, this is something that can be of encouragement to you. You and I most likely don't have a large platform of followers and people who would ever hear our name and realize who we are. But though the world would look at that and say, well, then your influence is meaningless. Here we see one example among multitudes elsewhere in Scripture that our living of our lives in accordance to the teachings of God's Word as motivated by faith and love in God is more of note to the world than our much speaking. This is in, not in any way to lessen the need for open proclamation against the world, but it is to confirm that faithfulness in the life of true believers is a bigger testimony than all of the platforms available to us through speech today. They refuse to walk by sight, and in their refusing to walk by sight and thus refusing to sin, they take note of the same. Notice there's further evidence that it is when they're brought to Nebuchadnezzar, and Nebuchadnezzar himself now is speaking, and he says, is it so? Is it true that you don't serve my gods, that you don't worship the golden image which I've set up, verse 14? And he gives them, as it were, another offer. If you're ready to do it now, when you hear the sounds, everything will be fine. And so they've passed a test, haven't they already? They didn't bow the knee. They didn't fall before. But now it's being brought to perhaps to our own fear. What if I'm brought and the spotlight's put on me? What now am I going to do? Well, this is what's brought to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And the other evidence of their faith is their assurance before the trial and the one wielding the sword of that trial. Notice the sharp words of Nebuchadnezzar. If ye worship not, verse 15, ye shall be cast the same hour into the midst of a burning fiery furnace. And who is that God that shall deliver you out of my hands? Brethren, this is actually insightful because this is really where the test is pointed. It's pointed against the veracity of God. You see this when Israel is in various wars and, you know, uh, various messengers come and say, don't say that your God's going to deliver you because what about this city and that city and the other city that we've destroyed? Their God's didn't help them. Your God's not going to help you. It's the same thing that Satan did to Adam and Eve. Hath God said. And it's the same thing that happens to us again. It's pitting us against God or by faith adhering to God. And so Nebuchadnezzar pinpoints the very thing. Who is that God that shall deliver you out of my hands? Think of the force of that. You see my hands. You see the furnace right next to me. You see all of the men around me watching you. But you can't point a finger to where your God is. You can't point out and say, well, here's even the image of your God. But notice the assurance of their faith in verse 16. 
They respond with reverence due to his office, to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar. But notice the simplicity of their response. We are not careful to answer thee in this matter. They don't go into some tirade. They don't throw up all sorts of dust and say, oh, this is a foul and so on, and everyone look what he's doing to me. They come with simplicity, much like Jesus Christ comes to those who would stand against him. Such simplicity. We're not careful. We're not anxious. We're not writhing in worry about how we're going to get out of this. That's not our concern. What is this telling us but that they have an assurance that their faith is founded on one who is good? And we'll see more of that in a moment. But simply notice the effect of faith. It gives a solidity to the soul that is immovable in the face of opposition. Now, we should be clear to note that we don't only, even as believers, have faith. We also have fear because of sin that remains in us and weakness of faith. Christ will be one who reproves, O ye of little faith, O ye of no faith. And even as we see elsewhere recorded in the Scripture, one comes to Christ and says, I do believe, help thou mine unbelief. Here is a measure of great faith. And yet in seeing great faith, it helps us see the effect of faith. Where there is great faith, there will be great calm. We're not anxious about this. You can do whatever you're going to do. We've put our hope in God. We trust in the Lord. This is a great help for us. And it's something for us to consider. If you and I are anxious in our trials, it is a little light on the dash of our souls saying, faith is weak. doesn't mean that there's no faith necessarily. But this is the kind of thing that can be helpful for us Whatever the trial is, it can be a family member, it can be a financial issue, who knows what the matter might be. As we've heard in recent sermons, trials come in such diversity that it is innumerable for us. However the trial comes, if it sets off in us a sense of anxiety, what it's telling us is, my faith isn't as strong as it should be. Of course, God doesn't have to change. God doesn't have to get bigger. God doesn't have to get stronger. There's nothing that has to change about God. It's that our faith is weak and our faith has to be cultivated. And so when we think about resisting temptation with a friend or resisting temptation in secret or resisting temptation with family, whatever it might be, and there's that worry that grips us. How am I going to answer this and that and the other thing? How am I going to go about explaining everything? And notice... Though these were tremendously bright men, remember their qualifications, they were skillful in all manner of knowledge and able to learn all of the learning of the Chaldeans. These weren't know-nothings. These weren't you know, dull minds. These were brilliant men. But they don't labor to give this rhetorical masterpiece of an argument of great length. They simply express... We're not anxious about this. Why is it that they're able to say as much? Well, it's not because they didn't know what the consequence would be. They knew the furnace was there. They knew Nebuchadnezzar would do what he would. They knew all of these things. They knew they didn't have more with them physically than were against them. They didn't have a physical way out. But what it was, was they knew the God 
in whom they trusted. And isn't that the same for us? And shouldn't this evidence be also our evidence that when trial and temptation comes, and we think perhaps at first of all of the knots and difficulties and things that would come, and we start to feel our heart race and our breathing get short and all of those fears circle in our, circulate in our minds and souls, we need to step back and say, wait a second, I'm trusting God. And there is a great calm that can grip us. It doesn't blind us to the reality of what may be coming, but it does give us help in the midst of those trials. This leads then thirdly to the resolve of faith, which you see in verses 17 and 18. And here you see why it was they had assurance. Verse 17, if it be so, that is, if God desires it, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and He will deliver us out of thine hand. Now to be clear, they're not saying we know for a fact that He's going to deliver us out of your hand. What is being said grammatically in this passage is if God is willing, we know God's able to and He'll do it. Notice, Their faith isn't a manufactured, well, we know everything's going to turn out temporally good. They don't know that. What they're assured of is, if God wants to deliver us, we don't have to worry about the way that's going to happen. He's going to do it. We trust Him. We've counted the cost. We know if we follow you, this is the risk. We'll get caught. We've been caught. We're going to be cast into the fiery furnace. But we know that if God wants to deliver us, He will. Out of your hand, notice the particular uh, pronoun, out of thine hand. Remember what Nebuchadnezzar said in verse 15? Who is that God that shall deliver you out of my hands? Well, if our God wants to, your hand, their hand, everyone's hand is no different thing for us. God is able to do it. They had complete trust in God. Their complete trust in God is shown as well in their complete submission to God. Because they go on to say, but if not, that is, if God doesn't want to do it, be it known unto thee, O king, we will not serve thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. Which is a way of saying, we're ready to go into the furnace. If God's not going to deliver us, we know the consequence. Send us to the furnace. I said a funeral today of a believing woman who died of two years' struggle with cancer and going through the various treatments that are common today, which ravaged her body with weakness and pain. She told the doctor on one occasion when the doctor said, I'm not sure if the treatment is going to work. And to be very clear, it's, uh, if it doesn't work, you're going to die. And her words capture much, albeit in a different context, what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said. She said, whether I survive or die, I win. Think of that for a moment. That's where the faith is. Whether I survive, if the Lord chooses to bless this medicine and medical care, and I overcome cancer, and I have many more years of life and so on in health, well, that's a victory. But if I don't, if I go through the rest of this treatment for another, at that point, year to come, and I realize that all of that means it's going to be uh, uh, wasting my body away to seasons of pain and so on, and ultimately I die, 
I still win. Because my hope is not in this life. My hope is in my God. Brethren, here's Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego not facing cancer, but facing a real trial nonetheless. And they realize it's not for us to determine what's going to happen. It's for us to trust God and follow Him. We're going to trust His Word knowing that if He wants my life to be extended, He'll extend it. If He wants my life to be ended, He'll end it. Whatever He has purposed, that is what we're submitting to. Brethren, we think maybe there's truth to it. We think, well, if I was in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's position, I would be able to do the same. We don't know, but perhaps we're right. We say, but my trial is so different and I have so many different pains. I have, I have emotional pains. I have relational pains. I have financial pains that really weigh heavily upon me. And so, though I can understand how Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are able to resolve to have faith in the midst of this trial, I mean, let's be honest, if they're thrown into a fiery furnace, their life is likely going to be ended fairly quickly. And so, what's the pain? Whereas my trial is, as I foresee it, going to be significantly longer. And it's going to weigh heavily upon my relationships. And it's going to waste away my finances. Or it's going to waste away my body. Whatever it might be. Brethren, we could go through the Scriptures and find all sorts of other trials. But everyone would unite in this thing. Faith resolves whatever the trial is to trust God whether it's a fiery furnace here or as Daniel with the lion's den or with others turning away from family in the Scriptures, Christ Himself bearing the reproaches of a mother and brethren for a season and the waywardness of disciples. All of these things are diverse, of course, but they unite in this. Are we resolved to trust God whatever the cost? When you hear it put that way, you'll remember what Christ told us. You know, you're to consider the cost. A man doesn't set to build a building without first considering, you know, how long it's going to take, how much it's going to have. A king doesn't say, you know, we're just going to leap into war without measuring out. Do we have the resources to complete it and so on and carry on to victory so long as we can carry out? But rather, we consider the cost. What's being shown here is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego considered the cost. And brethren, your trial comes to you and it says in so many ways, have you considered the cost? What if I take this away from you? What if I take your physical comforts away from you? What if I take your finances away from you? What if I take family away from you? What if I take friends away from you? What if I take health away from you? What if I take other things away from you? Are you willing to trust me still? If you go back to 1 Peter chapter 1, you have the key to it all. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego get it. You see it in their lives. Notice there 1 Peter and chapter 1. Peter commends the faith of these believers in the midst of their trial. And he testifies to them in verse 7, the trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, ye love. 
faith is being tried. But of course, all other graces are as well. Whom do you love? Do you love the God of heaven and earth? Or do you love your kids more? Do you love Jesus Christ? Or do you love your finances more? Do you love His kingdom? Or do you love this kingdom? And Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego stood before the greatest ruler of that day and age and said, we don't love our lives compared to what we love of God. We don't love our comfort compared to God. We don't love the praise of men compared to God. Their love was settled on God. They believed His Word. They trusted Him. And they found in Him the source of their great delight. Brethren, it is, of course, unlikely in the present day that we should suspect that we'll be brought to face an emperor of like nature of Nebuchadnezzar and face perhaps a fiery furnace, but you can guarantee you'll be tried tonight, tomorrow, and the rest of your lives. Some will be little, almost in uh, uh, conspicuous and not easily detected. Others will be large. And yet, before you, remember, you're facing the same question. Is God the one you're trusting? Are you ready to trust God if it means the loss of comfort, life, friends, family? Is He worth it? Is Christ lovely, lovelier, yea, the loveliest? Is heaven real? Is the resurrection to come made more glorious by sufferings? All of these things are being challenged in the moment. Though it comes to us in various questions, hath God said, you do realize there's a fiery furnace. You do realize there's a spouse. You do realize there are children. You do realize there's finances. All these different things come, but they come really pinpointing a question. And the question is, is God worthy of your trust and your devotion? This is why when we say things like, the study of God is the most practical thing that you can give yourself to. It's actually the most practical thing you can give yourself to. Because the more you come to know the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the more your life will be prepared against temptation. The more your life will be fortified against the assaults of Satan. The more you'll be faithful to train up your children, to invest in your spouse, to serve in the church, and all of these different things, to give when your finances are low. All of these things come to us as practical outworkings of our knowledge of and trust in God. God was the motive for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Not their own glory, not their own gain, not their own comfort, not their own influence, because they weren't anxious about those things. Isn't it interesting that Christ tells us, you know, take no thought what you'll eat, what you'll drink, wherewithal you'll be clothed. But rather seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And all these things shall be added unto you. So brethren, with this before us as we close, here's a call for each of you, whether you're in the midst of a very known trial or you're in the midst of great ease. It is a call for you to know your God. 
to give yourself to the diligent study of His Word in vital communion with Him. Not just know about your God, but to know your God. It's not just that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego could recite certain things that were true. They knew God, and they trusted God. They didn't trust a set of principles. They didn't trust a set of statements. They trusted the true and living God. And this, of course, demands right knowledge, but it also demands the fellowship of faith. Being with the three-personed and eternal God in prayer, in worship, and so on. All of this cultivates then, so that if you stand as the dear Christian woman whose body was committed to the earth this afternoon with the testimony of a doctor, we don't know what's going to happen. You're able to testify in faith, well, whether I survive or die, I win. Or if it is that your stance would mean that certain family members or friends are going to push back against you, maybe the relationship's lost forever, you say, listen, I have God. I have something better than family. I have something better than friends. If your commitment puts finances and house and everything else or God at odds with one another, you say, if I have to roam the earth, if I lose my comforts, I have God. All of this comes, though, by the gracious gift of faith. And so though we can prepare ourselves in outward ways, the greatest thing that you and I have need of doing is knowing our God and pleading with Him to give us and cultivate faith in us that we might, when tested, show forth the gold of faith given to us to His glory and His praise. Would you stand with me?